Welcome to Totally Biased Media, the podcast where three brothers that know nothing about video games tell you everything they know about video games. I'm Jordan, and maybe the real dark place was the friends we made along the way. I'm Jason, and Stephen King once wrote... I'm Jackson, and it's not a lake. It's DiGiorno. Alan Wake first came onto the scene in 2010, and other than a half-DLC, half-sequel a few years later, and some Nod and some other Remedy games, we haven't heard from him since. But now, 13 years later, he's back, and so is his evil doppelganger, Mr. Scratch. We've got murders to investigate, cults to fight, and novels to write. Let's get into it. Alan Wake. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Okay. I mean, I'm excited for this one. <laughs> so, you know, I mentioned up at the top, first came out in 2010. Uh, before we get into anything about our thoughts on this game or, you know, what we liked, what we disliked, did did any of us play Alan Wake at the time it initially released? <laughs> no, because I was six or seven. I missed out on it because it looked scary. But I do remember seeing ads for it, like, all over Walmart. <laughs> this is a game that's kind of been on my peripheral for a long time. But I this is the first I've really engaged with the series at all. Yeah. it's <laughs> It hasn't been on my peripherals for, like, a long time. But I think, like, two years or something, I heard something about it. And I mentioned to y'all that I was thinking about playing it. And y'all were like, don't do it. You're going to absolutely hate it. So then I put off playing it until, when was it? Whenever they released the remaster for it on PS Plus, and then I downloaded it, played like five minutes, and then it played again until, like, I don't know, two months ago or so. Yeah, I do want to say, I think that if you had played it two years ago, you would have hated it. That is true. That is 100% true. Yeah. This I podcast has really made me grow as a gamer. Yeah. This game's also interesting because it's it's been a, a big upheaval in our schedule because originally I don't think we were planning on doing it just because this game has a lot of baggage with it and I don't think at the time any of us were super into the idea of playing the original and American Nightmare and like all of its other other game connected stuff. But as our schedule kind of opened up and some stuff moved around and some stuff got delayed and I think we just decided to skip a couple of games. It found its way back in. I think we so. just straight up added an episode to our schedule for the year for this episode. I'm not 100% sure on that. We might have had Sonic Superstars at some point and took that off and moved stuff for this. That's what happened, yeah. Uh, the only reason uh, we ended up playing this game for the podcast is because I really did not want to play... Um, crap, I can't... Uh, what was it? Super Mario RPG and WarioWare. <laughs> And then we still did an episode about those games anyway. <laughs> I just so. wasn't there. Meanwhile, Sonic yeah. Superstar sits still in its factory <laughs> ceiling in a box next to my PlayStation. Yeah, I I pre-ordered Sonic Superstars and then refunded it before I ever played it. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think I realized what I was getting all of us into when I said we should play this. Because originally, it was just going to be me playing Alan Wake and then Alan Wake 2, and I was going to talk about that on our uh, Super Mario RPG episode, but we were like, that's three games in one episode. That's insane. 
So then we talked about just doing an episode for it, and we were all going to play Alan Wake for it. Then I find out because of Jason that it not only has two DLCs, but it also has a spinoff title and an entire another game loosely attached to it. That That's Control, um, which has led me down a deep spiral. Oh, not only that, it also has a miniseries and a blog, which I guess you don't have to read or watch those for it, but it's still pretty cool. <laughs> it's funny because... Uh... The blog is maybe one of the most important pieces of lore in the whole series. Oh, and yeah. It's it's just yeah. a random blog on Blogspot, and they don't draw attention to it anywhere. And the only way you could like possibly know about it or find out about it at this point is someone mentioning it on Reddit. <laughs> yeah, like, it's insane how ridiculously important that is. It also just starts off being about some random person buying a new house, and it doesn't get into, <laughs> like, anything that actually matters in the slightest for like four or five page length posts. But anyways, this started to lead me down a huge rabbit hole that I've been stuck in for the past two months playing through all these games. And I think that's the best decision I have made this year (laughs) because Alan Wake two is absolutely incredible. And I don't think we would have played it if I didn't really not want to play warrior (laughs) Wear. Wow, thanks, Jackson. Yeah, thanks, Jackson. You single-handedly brought us into this. <laughs> and that's why you've been talking about all those spin-off games and, and earlier games in the series that led us to this episode for the past several weeks, right? <laughs> yeah, because I was the one that talked about the spin-off games, and I was I definitely never considered not playing them. <laughs> hey, I just didn't play them. But I think we need to talk about Alan Wake. Uh, the the first game just a little bit first because without some narrative set up this game is a a lot <laughs> i think we definitely got to talk about uh how we got where we are now 13 yeah. years later i think one of y'all should do it too because this is the type of game where if i try to explain it it's not gonna there's gonna be no nuance to it and then i'm gonna get like raked over the coals for being like an idiot who didn't understand it. You can't feel too bad. Every single time that Jackson has like given his theory for what's going on in the story or what he thinks went on in one of the games or anything like that, he has been demonstrably wrong. <laughs> yeah, almost every time. It's very rare that I'm actually right about what's going to happen, which actually works out pretty good because then I get surprised. <laughs> I just think it's funny that we've had like, 10 different conversations talking about the lore of the Alan Wake series. And you've been wrong. I think every single time (laughs) and not just like, (laughs) it's not like you're wrong. And then, you know, a lot of time passes. It'll be like, we'll have a conversation where we'll disagree on something. And then literally the next time we turn the game on, it'll be like, Oh yeah. Alan Wake just pops up on screen. He's like, so basically Jackson's wrong. And here's why. (laughs) (laughs) That happened several times playing through Alan Wake 2 and a couple times playing through Control. (laughs) But uh, anyways, to set up where we are now. So 13 years ago, good old 2010, when we thought the world was still going to end in 2012, Alan Wake 1 was released to... I mean, I know people liked it, but it wasn't like a huge hit or anything, was it? I mean, Alan Wake was pretty big, especially between its marketing and the people behind it. Uh, because this game was it was published by Xbox. 
it was one of like Xbox Game Studios' biggest releases of the year, and they were really pushing it. I mean, if you had an Xbox 360 when this game came out, like Alan Wake was all over your your dashboard. I think it's just where I was six or seven when the game released. It's always felt more like a cult classic to me. I mean, I think the fact that the game didn't really get any meaningful sequel for 13 years, it, it basically was a cult classic. Yeah. Like, it came out, and people liked it and played it, and there was discussion about it. I know because this is a game that you have to look stuff up sometimes to figure it out, and yeah. I've I've delved into a lot of me- uh, message boards from, like, 2010 that are just people like but what do you think he meant by this what do you think this means what does it's not a lake it's an ocean really mean but yeah alan wake was it was something that xbox was pushing particularly hard they had a live action prequel mini series it's called bright falls there's like i don't remember six or eight ten minute episodes give or take i might be misremembering on the length of those it might be way shorter it's only about half an hour total. I I just watched them while eating one, lunch one day. <laughs> oh yeah, it's like eight five minute episodes. Yeah, but that that just leads into the first game. It kind of just Alan Wake's not even until like the very last scene, <laughs> but it just kind of sets up the Bright Falls where all of this is happening. Bright Falls is Twin Peaks. That's what yeah. <laughs> the show Bright Falls is about. How the town Bright Falls is the town from Twin Peaks, <laughs> which I think is just called Twin Peaks. So imagine if there was a town, and in that town, everything sucked and was bad. That's Bright Falls. <laughs> no, that's Silent Hill. Bright Falls, <laughs> oh, everyone yeah. in Bright Falls loves Bright Falls. It's the people that come to visit that hate it. Alan Wake, our titular protagonist, arrives in Bright Falls on a trip with his wife because he wants to get away. He's a famous author, but he's been having some issues, both you know, in the public eye, people think that he's like a party or playboy and whatnot. He's just having a lot of personal issues that are bleeding over into his work, and it's preventing him from being able to write his new novel. He's written a whole bunch of novels about this detective dude, Alex Casey. It's like a your standard noir like detective thrillers where the main character just happens to be exactly like Max Payne in every single way. <laughs> And while Alan is going away on this trip with his wife, Alice, he finds out she has second intentions and has actually set up appointments with a specialist who focuses on artists who cannot figure out what the heck to do next. More specifically, she's basically tricked him to coming to this island vacation with her just so he could have like a quiet place to write. And he was not intending on writing at all on this trip. So he gets to the, they get to their airbnb hotel whatever (laughs) and they actually find out or you find out as the player that they've been sent to a completely wrong place and hijinks ensue he gets mad at alice he storms out of the building when he finds out that she's you know brought a typewriter for him to write on and he feels tricked and betrayed and uh as soon as he gets outside of the house she gets pulled into the lake and hijinks ensue (laughs) This lake is evil, y'all. Alan jumps in and he wakes up a week later. And then a lot of stuff is going down. (laughs) Now we're going to get much less granular and just say, Alan Wake has essentially written an entire horror novel while he was out for that week. 
and he is now living through the events of that horror novel while also trying to rewrite it and edit it so he can get himself out and save his wife. This whole time he's being chased by something called the Dark Presence in the form of another uh, lost artist's wife who had died. And eventually he finds a way to write the story so that he defeats this Dark Presence and Alice gets out. But however, Alan becomes trapped in the dark place now. So an important piece of context here. So this lake is a central theme for the entire series. Like everything is centered around the lake. And that's because this dark presence, which sort of is makes its home there, I guess is a very simple way to put it, uh, has this ability to sort of take creative people's creations and spin them to make them uh, sort of true in the real world, in a sense. So, like, Alan can write something or another person can make a painting or sing a song or whatever, and the lake will take the intention and the creativity of that and sort of spill it out into the real world. So basically, creative people keep finding their way to this lake, their creations become reality or like a dark twisted version of reality, and some of those creatives end up getting stuck in the lake, um, the dark place. So Alan has been in the dark place for a long time. And then there are two DLCs and a standalone sort of sequel sort of DLC thing that while aren't necessary for playing Alan Wake 2, I do think expand the context of things that are happening a lot, mostly in the form of introducing Alan Wake 2's antagonist, Mr. Scratch, for the first time, um, who is sort of this twisted version of Alan Wake that is, he's like Alan Wake, but if he was evil... Yeah, basically the whole time that Alan is trapped in the dark place, he has this double called Mr. Scratch who is out in the real world causing havoc in kind of small ways, honestly. <laughs> he goes out of his way to appear to Alan's wife, Alice, but he doesn't like do anything particularly to hurt her. It's more just him trying to drive her crazy. <laughs> And another thing that the two DLCs and DLC spinoff game uh, get into is that mostly just the DLC game, American Nightmare, is that part of what's happening in the dark place now is Alan is is trying to write his way out, but ultimately keeps getting stuck in loops and keeps failing. A big implication that's made in everything leading up to Alan Wake 2 is that the reason he's not able to write himself out is because the rules of the dark place still require the creative work to be logical or to at least fit with its own consistency of genre and whatnot. It has to be authentic. Yeah. It has to be true to the, the person creating it. So like Alan can't write something that he doesn't truly believe. And where it is a horror story, he has to write it as a horror story or it can't work, which is the reason he has to put himself into the dark place at the end of the first game. Right. Effectively, there's this idea that he is stuck because his genre inherently requires sacrifice. So if if there is if he's writing a horror story or something that's super tense or dark, you know, he can't just write they'll all live happily ever after and it just comes true because stories like that don't end that way. So he has to sort of come up with a story 
that makes sense, has a fitting ending, but also gets him out of the dark place, which is a very, very fine line to walk because the dark place is very specific in its intentions. What this leads us into is control, which only its DLC is really necessary for continuing the story, but control as a game does kind of set up that things like what happened in Bright Falls, stuff like that is kind of just happening everywhere, but is really like small and contained by the FBC or the Federal Bureau of Control, hence the name Control. But more importantly, it's DLC, it's second one, AWE, is about Alan Wake. Um, he is writing to Control's main protagonist, Jesse Faden, some stuff that's happening in a hidden department of the FBC. So you go and stop this, and most importantly, at the end, you find out that there is yet again something happening in Bright Falls. And for context... All of these games happen when they come out. So like Alan Wake was 2010. The end of the AWE DLC and Control sets up that something is triggering the alarms in Brightfall again. And have been for some time. However, like I was saying, these games take place when they come out. Control takes place in 2019. And Alan Wake 2 comes out in 2023, therefore takes place then. So there's just there's something going on and has been for some time. Alan had already been trapped for nine years by the end of Control and 13 years by the end of, well, by the beginning of Alan Wake 2. So he's had a long time where he's been trying to write himself out and has just failed over and over. And at this point, he's more or less just kind of gone crazy. So let's finally talk about Alan Wake 2. (laughs) 20 minutes in. So this game... This game picks up with two FBI agents, uh, Saga Anderson and Alex Casey, who ironically is very, very similar similar to the Alex Casey from Alan Wake's books. Uh, they are strolling into town to investigate a very peculiar murder, and in the process, they find out that this is all connected back to the lake and the dark place and the dark presence and Mr. Scratch and all this stuff. So a couple hours in, we find out that Saga in some way has sort of become the catalyst for Alan to finally escape the dark place. And then they need to work together to stop whatever evil presence this is now in our world because something escaped with him. So the game's sort of told in a really interesting way. Um, So you play equally as Saga and as Alan, and they both have very different roles in this. So Saga is an FBI agent who is investigating a murder. All of this is told from the perspective of she is trying to get to the bottom of this mystery. Alan's story is completely different. Everything you play as him, at least that I've played, was in the dark place itself. So it's technically prior to Saga's story but they keep overlapping in different points in the present day, like in Saga's timeline as well. So it goes all sorts of directions and all sorts of different ways, and they play very differently and have very different intentions and different goals. And it's it's very... Uh, I would say structurally, this is one of the most unique games I've ever played. Like, I, I haven't played a lot of games that are linear like this, but still have so much choice and have so much variety in terms of what you're actively doing at any moment. Yeah, because like 
when you're playing as Saga, you know, we mentioned that she's kind of tracking down this cult and trying to solve a bunch of murders and why they're happening and what's caused them to start up again because, you know, she she recognizes pretty early on that a lot of the murder victims that are popping up now are actually people that went missing back when the original Alan Wake game took place. So it's pretty clear early on that there's some kind of connection between Alan Wake and this new cult that's risen up, but she's trying to track that all down. She has to interrogate people and or I guess interrogate's not necessarily the right word, but <laughs> she needs to talk to the people in town. She needs to go investigate the murder sites and she needs to put it all together on her unique mechanic, which is she has a cork board essentially that you can put together all of the different clues and it kind of puts you in the, into her shoes where you're actually trying to solve the mystery and you need to figure out like, how does this clue connect to this clue? And how do these clues like all together lead to something new, which I think is pretty fun. I've always really enjoyed playing as a detective in games. What, what did you guys think about like the detective aspect of Saga's story? <laughs> That's probably my favorite part of the game. Um, so personally, I mean, I'm only about halfway through, so I'm going to sort of lay my cards on the table here. I take everything I say with a grain of salt because I'm missing the greater context of the game and basically the whole back half of it. From what I've played, I prefer playing as Saga by a pretty big margin because it's this very grounded, very honest sort of detective take. So you look for clues in ways that make sense, and then you infer information that makes sense from those clues. And I just, I feel like they did a really, really good job of this being like an honest-to-God detective story with a supernatural element sprinkled on top. Um, whereas I feel like with Alan, it's a thousand percent supernatural. <laughs> so. Well, when you're playing a saga, you, you not only have those... Uh you know, hunting for clues in the real world and like investigating footprints and dead bodies and stuff like that. But she also starts finding pages of the manuscripts that Alan has written while he's been in the dark place. And those, I mean, just like in Alan Wake 1, I, I think I talked about that several episodes ago, you know, these manuscript pages that she's finding, they provide context to the mystery that she's trying to solve or they'll foreshadow events that are going to happen, but... It doesn't give you enough information to necessarily be prepared about or be prepared for it, which I honestly think is something it does a lot better than the first game. I thought that when I was playing Alan Wake, you would find a manuscript page and it would be like, you're going to get attacked by a chainsaw guy. And then you get attacked <laughs> by a chainsaw guy like 10 minutes later. Yeah. Uh, I thought that this game was a lot better about giving you a little bit of information like it would tell you that something bad was going to happen but it wouldn't necessarily spoil the surprise yeah like there were also these uh one of the side activities is nursery rhymes and it has you solve some puzzles involving a nursery rhyme written out in front of you and then those things start to come true to an extent and it really just feeds into that whole like everything's being done by the art thing but specifically with the manuscript pages, she actually needs those pages to kind of fill in some of the gaps while she's solving the murders. On top of that, she also has some kind of special intuition or ability that kind of lets her peek into the minds of other people to figure out more about the crimes she's trying to solve. So, like, there's a, there's a scene early on where she's 
able to kind of figure out that some people had stolen some stuff from a crime scene by looking into her memories and intuiting it herself. And it's kind of supernatural. It's not necessarily very clear in the beginning how it's all going down, but she can essentially profile people to get extra information based on questions that she's not necessarily asking them out loud. (laughs) It's kind of a weird thing to explain. It's almost like she's able to read their minds. You know, like she finds a topic and then she's able to peek into people's minds and their memories and figure out like, is there any more information that you guys have about this? And and then the person that she's trying to profile or whatever is just like, huh, that detective doesn't know about the thing that I stole. (laughs) And then you can be like, I know you stole the thing. And they're like, how did you figure that out? And the things you learn in that, and then also the manuscript pages you use on your corkboard to put the clues together and solve the cases. And another thing about the corkboard, it's in Saga's mind place, which is a very important aspect of this game. One of the coolest parts of the game too, because it's kind of like a hub to an extent, because you have your corkboard, you can view your manuscript pages and collectibles you pick up within the game and a lot of that sort of stuff. And you don't, have to really like go anywhere to activate this or something or be in a safe spot you activate it whenever at the press of a button and everything around you in the game is still happening in real time so you can't activate to like get out of combat or anything because you will still get attacked and it's just all of the press of a button and is almost instant to get in there i'd just say it is instant to get in there <laughs> for alan over in the dark place he also has a mind place but it's the writer's room instead where he's writing the manuscripts and you know he's not a detective he's a writer so you don't have a cork board for that you have a board for alan's whole sort of piece of the puzzle of the stuff he does which is again he's a writer so his thing is all about writing out the scenes so a lot of the way the progression works for him is while trying to figure out what's going on, you will come across areas where you can change the scene. So some of these times you'll already have a piece that you can use for that scene available, or you have to find it in these things called echoes. And then you go into your mind place, apply this to the board at that scene, and it completely changes the world around you. Sometimes there's multiple scenes at each one, so there are multiple different things a room can be, and it's incredibly cool how they do that. I think it's really neat in context how the reason that Alan is able to make these changes to the different areas that he's exploring is because he is in the writing process. Like he is trying to find out how to best tell his story that he's trying to get across and get his way out of the dark place. And a lot of that kind of depends on him getting really close to the darkness because the closer he can get to the darkness, the more powerful his writing can become, but also the more at risk he becomes of being hurt by the darkness. Because in the dark place, there are shadows all over the place that are trying to kill Alan. And some of the shadows are just memories and they'll fade away when you get close to them, but some of them will actually attack him, which I think is really cool because it it keeps you on edge the entire time you're playing as Alan. You never know whether a shadow you're going to run into is just going to be 
But like I said, you never know if it's just going to fade away or if it's going to start attacking you. And the only way that you have to be sure is to shine your flashlight on it or just run into it and get attacked. <laughs> and you don't want to use your flashlight all the time because you only have a certain amount of charge for it. So you got to be real careful with that. That's actually a good setup for talking about combat as a whole um, because it is, it's a pretty big part of the game. Thankfully, it's, it's very different <laughs> than it was in Alan Wake 1. <laughs> Um, so both games have this emphasis on the people that are being taken over. Uh, they, they, you do have to shine a light on them to damage them as Alan. Like they are, he has to shine a bright light on them to basically materialize them so that his bullets will actually hit them instead of go right through. Um, and then Saga has something comparable where she can shine a light on them to make them more vulnerable, but she can also fight them with just guns most of the time. I do recommend using the flashlight as Saga basically whenever you can, or you're going to be losing like 10 shells to one enemy. There is, there's still this huge emphasis on using the flashlight in combat. Otherwise it's, it's pretty standard third person shooter stuff. Um, I would say in, in my opinion, this is definitely the weakest part of the game because it's very, uh, like it feels fine. But I wouldn't say it's like especially good shooter mechanics. And I do think that the flashlight's a little too important sometimes. Like like you said, I mean, it's just you have to waste so much ammo if you don't use the flashlight first. I don't necessarily mind that because, you know, in Alan Wake 1, you had to use the flashlight all the time. And it has story relevance. But my issue with this game has got to be the auto-aim. Sometimes you'll try to shine your flashlight at an enemy and it'll just not actually destroy their shield. Like, it'll be slightly off, so it won't be doing any light damage to them. And then other times, like when you're just trying to use your gun, for some reason the auto-aim almost always goes for the chest, where, like, your bullet will do the least amount of impact. And the auto-aim's just a little bit too strong, and the manual aiming a little bit too floaty, I guess. that It feels like it's really hard to actually line up a headshot. Way, like, way harder than it needs to be. I think it would honestly be easier if there wasn't auto-aim. <laughs> yeah, the combat does have some issues, but I think it is greatly improved from the original game, and a lot more in line with more recent survival horror, like the Resident Evil remakes or the Dead Space remake. I can't really say anything about their original games because I never played that. <laughs> I think it's hard to compare to the original game because, it, I mean, in that game, you didn't need to aim the gun really at all you just needed to be looking in the right direction and alan did everything for you so there wasn't like getting headshots or at least it wasn't anywhere near as important in alan wake one as it is in this game in alan wake one it was more about keeping the light on an enemy for a certain amount of time to break their shield and then popping three bullets in them and they're, they're dead <laughs> there wasn't a whole lot to it and eventually it just kind of becomes very boring well i think while it does have issues in alan wake 2 it is definitely a lot better and pretty fun at times but though i still would say it is the weakest part of the game but even with it being the weakest part it's still very good which i think is just kind of a testament to how good this game is i think my biggest problem with the combat really just boils down to i think each encounter lasts a little bit too long for my taste because I really enjoy the exploration and pushing the mystery forward and solving the murders. But I think, and I think sometimes the combat just feels like a stumbling block along the way more than an extension of that. 
So, you know, I'll, I'll just need to get from point A to point B and there's just going to be three enemies in the way. And I'm just going to, you know, most of the time I just feel like, okay, I guess I'll do this now. So it, it's, it, the times when the combat is integrated directly into the story, I think it's excellent. Like, I think the two big boss fights I've done so far have been really, really good. But I do think that most of the regular enemies you just encounter when you're out exploring, I have not particularly enjoyed fighting them, and I've ran whenever I reasonably could. Yeah. I think it's kind of annoying how it's got respawning, like, randomly appearing enemies in the world. Because you'll run into enemies in some really inopportune areas sometimes, and it causes, like, it, it causes those small issues we've mentioned with the combat to become way bigger. Especially when you just end up getting, like, surrounded by enemies, and there's there's really nothing you can do. And it, it only takes, like, two enemies to surround you to the point where you're basically just gonna get bludgeoned to death with a pipe. And, you know, if you don't keep your distance at all times, I think the dodging is, it's not as bad as it was in Alan Wake 1, but it's still kind of inconsistent. It's weird because I think that they really fixed the dodging and it works almost the exact same way in Alan Wake 1, Alan Wake American Nightmare, and Alan Wake 2. It felt like it was fixed in Alan Wake American Nightmare and then they made it slower and weirder again in Alan Wake 2. I don't know. I don't really like the feel of it. It's kind of hard to put it into words, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just it feels very loose. Like, sometimes it just doesn't feel like it's working the way it should, and sometimes it the timing feels inconsistent. And I think the timing always feels too early. It feels like you need to be dodging before they even start the attack sometimes. Like, you need to know that they're going to attack and already be dodging instead of being responsive to, like, seeing them start the attack. But like I said, my biggest issue is just the auto-aim. It's, it's way too strong, and it points to the worst spot to shoot an enemy. <laughs> it would make more sense if there were human enemies where, like, shooting them in the chest was actually effective. I mean, like, all the enemies are humanoid, or at least most of them, but headshots are really the only way to go. You kind of... There are other enemies that you run into occasionally. As Saga, she runs into wolves. Uh, and those were definitely the worst enemies to fight, because they would just run in a big circle around you and then straight towards you. Very annoying to fight those. Yeah, and that was... It's 100% reliant on the dodge mechanic there. Because if you don't dodge them, they do two-thirds of your health bar. Even when you have, like, upgraded health with one of the charms. That said, it's different from Alan Wake 1 and American Nightmare. I'm really glad it is. <laughs> it's definitely kind of interesting to compare them and see where the cracks start to form. You know, or like we said, when you're playing as Alan, you have to shine the flashlight at an enemy before you can even start damaging it. And when you run into that thing where shining the flashlight doesn't actually do the damage to the enemy, or it doesn't damage their darkness shield, then you've just wasted a flashlight charge, and that's something you only have limited ammo on. Because where this is more survival horror this time around, you got to do some resource management to an extent. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting transition. Whereas I felt like the older Alan Wake games were closer to just being action games. Yeah, they were a lot more linear and a lot more just normal action. While these are 
more open and slower. I guess conceptually nothing's really changed. It's just the fact that this game is actually scary. And that was something <laughs> yeah. that Alan Wake 1 could not manage at any time. Well, I mean, this game this game is open world is the big difference for the survival element. Like you you can go a lot further off the beaten path and you can do certain things out of order and you you are emphasized to go search for stuff more because I would I would argue if you're just doing the bare minimum for the story, you're going to be very, very short on ammo most of the time. Whereas if you are out looking for everything there is to find, there's going to be a lot of instances where you can find what you need in the optional areas, which will make the main story easier. Well, it's kind of interesting because sometimes while you're out exploring for resources and stuff like that, you'll end up with fewer resources than you started with. I am a big fan of that personally. Like I like the idea of thinking, am I good enough off right now where I can go into that area to see what's there or get more resources? Or would it be better just to continue on the path in case something comes up and I know what I have now at least? Which I don't think comes up super often because this game is still, for the most part, like at least when it comes to storytelling, still pretty linear. Um, usually, you know if you're going off the beaten path pretty well, but I do still like that change a lot. Well, you have a map at yeah, all yeah. times, and it, it makes it pretty clear where you need to go. I, there's not like points on the map marking exactly where you need to go at any given time, but... The story generally makes it pretty clear, and the maps are well labeled, but they feel like realistically labeled. Yeah, I'm glad it doesn't just tell you where to go all the time because the moment I picked up a map, I thought like I would just start getting like map markers, but the game will be like, you need to go here, and then you'll see on your map where that thing is. Um, but then it might be like, oh no, it's flooded. So now there's a bunch of trees and water in the way. So you can't go that way. You got to figure out a different way to get there. One thing I do like about the exploration is that it always feels pretty tense. I think that this game just absolutely near, absolutely nails the atmosphere. Mm -hmm, definitely. Because it feels like any time that you're out, especially when you're in the forest areas, it, it feels like at any time, just two or three enemies could pop out. And the combat, you know, like it has its issues, like we mentioned, but it is pretty good at like remaining tense all the time because any given enemy can kill you in like two or three hits. And they can come from any direction and the maps are pretty like open. There's not a lot of like narrow corridors or anything like that. Generally, when you're out exploring the forest, the only thing that prevents you from going a certain direction are like naturally formed cliffs and, and the trees there's not like fences all over the place that just keep you from exploring like it, it feels very natural it's a very good map design and the enemies can come from anywhere and they can take advantage of that map design just as much as you can to create distance between you or find natural cover i only played on normal so maybe this isn't true on the harder difficulties the enemy ai isn't like smart <laughs> Like they won't, they won't seek out cover and hide behind it. It's more just sometimes their positioning, their more or less random positioning will put them with a tree between the two of you. So it kind of makes it harder to position yourself and keep track of where everyone is. That said, it's not necessarily as good 
<laughs> survival horror experience as something like Resident Evil 4. Which I found myself comparing it to Resident Evil 4 quite a bit. Yeah. It's definitely, Same. when it comes to combat, very inspired by it. Even as someone that only played a few hours of Resident Evil 4 Remake. But while Remedy does want to make good, you know, combat, you can tell that the story is where their focus is. Because oh, absolutely. There's a lot of times. There's a lot of times in this game where you're not even playing a game, and it's still amazing. Yeah, I mean, it does a really good job of blending these live action cutscenes and the gameplay itself. Especially, there are some segments where you're playing as Alan, and it is like seamlessly blending between the live action stuff and the gameplay stuff. Yeah. Like, I can't speak on um, the Max Payne games, but something Remini's always done is like the multimedia thing, where in their game they also have like live action shots and they have televisions that have stuff that is recorded in live action on them. And at Alan Wake 1, you would come across TVs of Alan talking about the writing a lot. Uh, in Alan Wake 2, you still find that a lot. There's also just a lot of times where you're not watching the game, which has a TV on it. The game just becomes live action footage for a little. Yeah, I mean, Quantum Break and Control did that stuff every once in a while as well. Yeah. Quantum Break, I mean, just had a TV show as part of its narrative. <laughs> not a very good TV show, but... I think that Remedy has really been interested for a long time in kind of combining live action storytelling with TV shows, movies, and video games. And I think that Alan Wake 2 is the first time that they've really nailed that dichotomy, I guess. They do a lot more with it. It's a lot more important. And there were some... There's one particular thing that I'm not going to talk about because I think it's just... It's something you've just got to see and is not as cool as if you know about it. It is so ridiculous and not something I ever expected in a video game. And it's just really cool. <laughs> as you get near the end of the game, there's just straight up a 15 minute foreign language film. I missed that somehow. I didn't watch the whole thing, but I, I did stand there for like, five to ten minutes I, I looked it up online and people were talking about it being 15 20 minutes long <laughs> and it, it it's crazy honestly i i don't know how to put it other than just saying it's crazy and it's weird and it's so clear that remedy has just this passion for making these types of games it's the same kind of passion that you can tell that david cage has when he's trying to make games like heavy rain um but the difference is that remedy is actually good <laughs> it's really nice to see how that sort of stuff has evolved and how just important it is in Alan Wake 2 I also want to give particular props to the game Alan Wake 2 has two major characters that have separate voice actors and live action actors and the lip syncing is incredible <laughs> it is the best lip syncing that I have ever seen in a game and like I think the they did all right with it in Alan Wake 1. There's, there's only a few live action segments in Alan Wake 1. And they, they might not even be live action. They might just be CGI and the lighting's weird enough that you can't really tell. But in Alan Wake American Nightmare, 
there are a few more and it's a little iffy sometimes. Like you can definitely tell that there is a different person doing the voice acting and actually acting on the camera. But I think in Alan Wake 2, it's seamless. And I I have no idea how you do that because (laughs) it is so strange looking at an actor and on some level knowing that the things coming out of their mouth are coming from a completely different person but not necessarily being able to detect it while you're watching them. Like, is there anything in particular we want to talk about? I think we've just about covered all of it. Yeah. There's nothing I actively dislike about this game. There was a lot of stuff I disliked about the first Alan Wake. Um, But I do think there's something about this game that just, it never clicked with me like it did for other people. And I don't know what it is. Like, I don't know what the missing piece is. Like, I'm enjoying it, and I'm enjoying it more the further in that I get. But I just, I don't know. Something about it has just never really done it for me. Um, I, I really, really like Saga's side of the story. And I really like exploring this town and the way that she solves murders. I think everything that takes place actually, it, it, everything in Alan's side of the story is just, I don't know, it's not doing it for me. Everything's a metaphor, and everything that happens, there's always a possibility it just didn't happen, and you'll see all these like weird little, like it'll flip through all these scenes, rapid fire, like it's someone like having all these like weird vision flashes and all that. That kind of thing just isn't, that just doesn't do it for me. Like, I just don't like that kind of aesthetic and that vibe in most games. I have, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that this game isn't always for me. And it's mostly the stuff that's happening to Alan that isn't for me more than the game as a whole. Yeah. I mean, I think a big part of it is just the meta narrative when you're playing as Alan. His story is a story about storytelling. Yeah. And if you're going to tell a story like that, then I, I feel like it's almost overly reliant on metaphor. And I get what it's going for. And I understand why it is the way it is. I just don't like certain parts of it. Like... Uh, Alan has this continuous sort of inner monologue, which is sort of the stand-in for the writing process. Like, it's obviously not going to show in the game him literally just sitting down and writing. So instead, he's basically telling you what he's writing while you're playing. And I get what I get why it does that. And I, I understand why people like it. For me, it just gets tiresome that he's just, you're doing something and he's always telling you what you're doing or what you're about to do. And like, I get why, like, I, I, I totally understand what the game was going for. I don't knock them for it from like a, a creative direction. I just, I got frustrated with it. I got much more frustrated with it in the first game than I did in this one, but it just feels like there's a constant stream of Alan explaining everything that's happening. <laughs> I mean, like you said, it it feels like it's important to the narrative that Alan be writing, right? And if he's not writing, then his role as the storyteller, as the writer, kind of goes away. (laughs) But, I mean, you're you're right. Like, it wouldn't be very interesting if there were just long segments playing as Alan and you're sitting at the typewriter writing. 
And I think that's kind of where the stuff with uh, changing the world around you with his writing comes in. And I think that's kind of what makes his portions the most interesting is getting to kind of see his process and, you know, writing things, deciding you don't like them, rewriting them, trying to come up with the most interesting story you possibly can with the bones of what you've already come up with. You know, like he's got an outline. The world around him is essentially his outline. And then the things that he can change are his edits, trying to actually make the story feel real. Yeah. And the way that that's implemented mechanically is brilliant. Like, I I love that concept. I just think that the way it tells its story and the fact that I just don't love the combat... It, it bogs down the time between when you're doing those things, like you're changing the story to change the world. Like, that's, that's honestly not a very big percentage of the game. And I don't like the stuff you're doing in the other percentage. It, I mean, I kind of have that problem with Saga side of the story as well. Like, I really, really enjoy when she is doing the detective work and when you're, uh, you know, piecing things together and when you're looking for clues. I really enjoy all of that. But I would say about half the time, you're just walking between the places where you're doing that and getting into fights along the way. And I don't love that. Like, I I don't know what this game would look like, but I would almost prefer if it only had story-centric fights. Like, if there just weren't any enemies in the open world. Like, even the first time you go there. Like, I, I think I would like it better if you only got into fights, like, the first time you go into a location in the narrative. And then the rest of the time, you're just free to go out and explore and try to solve this mystery. And because, like, I, I think what they've done with Bright Falls is really, really cool. Like, I think it's a very fun map to explore. You know, it's not very big, but it's very dense. And there's every every place you can go, every time that the path branches off, you're gonna find something at the end. And I think it's very rewarding in the way that it does that. But it's just that I dislike the combat so much. <laughs> and like the game just, it it's so, it's like it's trying to say a thousand things, but it never will just tell you anything outright. And I, I don't have a problem with that conceptually, but I'm just, I've just never liked games like that as much as some others do. Mm. I've always really liked how many questions that the Alan Wake games kind of leave unanswered. And, you know, I, I know that that can kind of be annoying and feel like sometimes they're leading you around and then they just tell you the answer is we're going nowhere, <laughs> you know. But I also think it's like really interesting that different people can have different takes on what's going on and they don't necessarily make it clear like who's right. So it gives the player more room to kind of think things through figure out the answers that they like best for themselves. And then as you play further into the game and more mysteries are revealed and more mysteries are solved for you, like, you know, maybe you have a thought on a mystery that gets solved later in the game and it turns out you were completely wrong. And sometimes that can completely reframe the way you're looking at the entire mystery, you know? And I, I just think there are very few games that kind of manage that. I will say, I'm a little disappointed with, uh, you know, like the corkboard stuff that you do both as Saga and as Alan, whether you're solving a mystery or rewriting his draft. That stuff starts coming up 
less and less as you get further into the game. And it's a little disappointing because I would have liked to have seen that stuff pop up more as I got further in. I was going to say my gripe with the the whole investigation board, which I think it's brilliant. Like, I love the investigation board as a, as a whole. I, I was kind of bummed to find out that there just is a right answer to where everything goes. And if you put something in the wrong place, it just immediately is like, no. <laughs> it puts it back. I kind of wish you could just mess up. Like, I think it would be more narratively interesting if you just could follow the wrong lead sometimes. And, like, the game still steer you back towards being right in the end. But I do think it would be more interesting if you could kind of put stuff up wherever for your own sake instead of there just being a fixed, correct way to to process everything that being said i could see that getting out of hand incredibly quickly and still i i think it is a brilliant system i really really enjoy it like every time i'd get a new piece of evidence i would be so excited to go right back to the board and put it up where it needed to go but i do think it was it would be really cool if there was a little more if it was a little more like you were actually piecing it out yourself yeah. instead of just putting the pieces in their correct places even if it wasn't that you could put the pieces anywhere but there were just like set places that it would let you put them or if you had to move clues around later as you got more information i think that would have been really interesting as well it is a little bit of a cop-out that there just straight up is a right answer and the game will not let you come up with a wrong answer in any case that said i mean i think even though it's semi-open world open zone as sonic might put it uh, <laughs> yeah I think that Alan Wake 2 is still a very linear game. For sure. Like it, yeah, there's yeah. still a very defined beginning, middle, and end. And maybe with New Game Plus, that gets less defined. Uh, but the game knows where it's going. And I think that that is why it relies so much on its like strong storytelling. Because there, there's no branching narrative here. There's no wrong answers your your characters are going the right way at all times and the only way that you can steer the ship is by deciding if they're going to spend some time exploring the forest for an hour or not <laughs> that said i mean i finished the game this morning i felt like the mysteries that the game did have really kept me gripped throughout the whole thing for sure i was i was just constantly just in awe of just what what's going on like I just I just haven't seen storytelling like this in any game or really just anything I can think of. I think it's really fun anytime that you get to see the culmination of like a decade's worth of storytelling like this. Yeah. It's kind of like how everyone felt when Avengers Endgame came out. <laughs> Alan Wake 2 was my Avengers Endgame. <laughs> Avengers Endgame was your Avengers Endgame, Jackson. That's also true. I do watch all of those stupid movies. <laughs> Uh, Joker was my in game. <laughs> it's really satisfying to see all of these plot threads that were set up literally 13 years ago come together in a satisfying way because there's another universe where Alan Wake came out in 2013 and it's just another game that no one talks about, right? Or, or there's another universe where Alan Wake 2 came out and just absolutely failed to deliver on the plot threads that were set up. So that's a much more probable universe than the one we're actually living in. Yeah. <laughs> so. 
Like, I, I, I think that the fact that Alan Wake manages to actually satisfyingly follow up 13 years worth and, you know, five games worth of storytelling in a way that is satisfying and fun and interesting is nothing short of a miracle. <laughs> Especially when one of the games setting that stuff up was god awful. Do not play Quantum Break. One of the worst games I played this year. Jackson, before we move on, do you want to give us your final thoughts about Alan Wake 2? This game has a few issues. I, I Combat is... gets a little tedious at some points. There's definitely a few like mechanical issues before it. Now, we didn't really talk about it, but I did run into a few bugs that were just some of the worst of this year, but still nothing completely game-breaking. The worst thing was just that I couldn't pick up a storage upgrade. Um, I still do hope that they fix bugs like this in the future, but still didn't make the experience worse somehow because the rest of the stuff that this game has to offer is just incredible. And I I've never seen anything like the way they present a story like this in a game before. And I already mentioned that, but I feel like that's the most important takeaway I have from this game. It's just, I don't know how it exists. And every moment of it is just incredible. And it's always thought-provoking. There's always something to figure out. And it's just a, such an enjoyable experience the entire time. Easily my favorite game this year. Possibly one of my favorite games of all time. I haven't had a game just pull me in so much since I don't know the first last of us probably I don't know <laughs> to answer your question of how this game was made uh, in the 80s Stephen King wrote a book called Misery <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then these guys were like what if we made a game like that <laughs> and then they went off the deep end I guess yeah but it's just it's incredible it's I guess it's a spoiler for a game of the year episode next year, but this is my game of the year. It's incredible. Even with all the amazing games that there have been this year, there's been nothing like this one. And I I can't wait to see what Remedy does next, even though it'll probably be like five years. I really like Alan Wake too. I'm not going to go around throwing out game of the year as uh, like on the day that I beat a game, right? <laughs> I am I'm clearly still under the effects of having just beaten this game and really enjoying it. I think that honestly, I was kind of enamored with the Alan Wake storytelling formula from the beginning of Alan Wake one. Like I, I felt pretty gripped by it from the moment that I started it. <laughs> I was interested in finding out more about the mystery and interested in the mechanics of how the dark place works and why Alan's storytelling is coming true, stuff like that. I really enjoyed Alan Wake and Alan Wake American Nightmare. I really enjoyed Control, and my favorite part of Control was probably the additional story, like... <laughs> I, I guess the additional background that that game gives to all the weird stuff going on in Alan Wake. I don't necessarily know that Al that Control and Alan Wake are like inextricably tied together but I think they are really good companion pieces to each other control kind of 
explaining that what's going on in Alan Wake isn't exactly unique to the world, but Alan Wake kind of providing the context that what's going on is way bigger than anything that they know about in that organization from Control. It's it's two sides where both sides both side thinks that it understands what's going on from the other perspective, but neither of them really do. I don't know if that's necessarily all intentional, but that was something big that I took from playing both of those games. Alan Wake 2, I think, delivers on a lot of the themes that were set up both in Alan Wake 1 and the stuff set up in Control in pretty satisfying ways. I think that it's the second best gameplay that controls or that uh, Remedy has managed. Control being number one, and that's just because of the uh, telekinesis. But I think Alan Wake 2 like, still has obvious issues with its gunplay, and having shine the flashlight on enemies is a cool concept, but it kind of ends up being annoying in practice. It's still a really fun game. I don't think that it necessarily outstays its welcome, unless you're hunting for every single collectible on the map. The game, even though I got nearly everything i i somehow missed like one commercial on a tv and that caused me to not get the platinum trophy but i got literally everything else it still ran me less than 30 hours and i really enjoyed those 30 hours and i'm planning on playing the new game plus partially because i've heard that it adds like additional narrative stuff there's a true ending stuff like that that you get for playing it but also just because I enjoyed the world that they set up. I like the characters. I think that Saga, Alex Casey, Alan Wake, like I think they're all really fun characters and they get to do a lot of interesting things in the story. I think there are very few games that are willing to do the Buffy the Vampire Slayer musical interlude episode and I am just absolutely ecstatic that Alan Wake is the game that is willing to do that. Yeah. It's incredible. <laughs> It's just a game where you can tell that they were passionate about making it. Like, every part of the game screams that this comes from a developer that wanted to make this game. And the games that they have made up until now have all had their flaws. But I don't think that there are necessarily any flaws from Alan Wake 1 or Control or even Quantum Break that pop up in Alan Wake 2. All of its flaws are wholly its own. And... I think that says a lot about the studio learning from their past mistakes. It's not a perfect game. I think it's a little full of itself, <laughs> but I still really enjoyed it. So I, I'd recommend it to anyone that's willing to sit through five other games before they play this one. If that's the kind of thing that you hear and you're like, I guess I'll check out those, those five other games first, then this is the game for you. Uh, and if you're not willing to check all those out, then I think the story of this game will leave you behind because it, it does rely so much on having seen everything that came up to it. And I, I mean, I, I think that's something you can attest to, right, Jordan? Like having missed out on control and a lot of the context that it provides. Like, do you feel like you're missing anything from the plot of Alan Wake 2? Uh, I wasn't at first. Uh, Jackson and I actually discussed this for a little bit before we started recording. So the first third of the game if i had to guess it's pretty good about it gives you the information that you need 
But there's this random point in the game where just all of a sudden a bunch of characters show up with like an expectation you already have a bunch of information about them. And they're like, we're the guys from Control. Hope you played Control. Otherwise, nothing's going to make sense for a while. Bye. Like, (laughs) it's very in your face when it finally does take over. Like, the the fact that this game is part of this longer continuation. I mean, I think that fairly early on you start running into... Uh, the the sheriff and his story has pretty clear ties to both control and quantum break. And I feel like if you haven't played those, you might not even notice like how much is going on. I I'd be interested to see your take on the sheriff. Once you beat the game, because I feel like he does so little in just the context of this game, but a lot more if you have the context of everything that came before it. And I, I think there are a lot of small things like that, that I guess, you know, I guess I, I should kind of rescind what I said earlier. It's not going to ruin the storytelling in this game, but it is going to leave you with a lot of questions that, like, I would not have, right? <laughs> I think it's a lot harder to go back to Alan Wake American Nightmare after playing Alan Wake 2 than it is vice versa, because the games get a lot better as they get newer. That's about all I have to say about Alan Wake 2. Pretty good game. Um, I don't, I, I, I haven't played enough of it to tell you anything more than that. <laughs> We've talked about what I disliked already. Um, but I will say overall, I, I really like the, the, the tone this game goes for, I think is great. And I think that when it is being a little more explicit about what it's trying to tell you, I really, really like the narrative. I just think it goes a little off the rails sometimes, and that's more a matter of taste because I I still understand what it's going for, and I think it achieves what it's going for. I just didn't particularly like it sometimes. So, Well, that's already a lot of Alan Wake 2 talk, so I think that means it's time to pull the plug. Jackson, what is something else that you have been into? Well, this is more of something we've all been doing. Um, we've been playing Fortnite. <laughs> I mean, we're always playing it. We, we've been sucked into this stupid game for like three years running now. Uh, but Fortnite has... Some stuff has happened recently to it. Uh, Eminem showed up and now suddenly there's Legos. I don't see the problem. <laughs> Recently, uh, Fortnite's OG season concluded. That was the one where they went back to the first map. Each week was based off a different season. And it ended with an event involving Eminem doing a concert that ended with a black hole. Just like the first chapter ended with a black hole. There was a part where you rode on top of a car while it played a racing game, but you didn't actually have any control over what the car was doing. Uh, there was a part where you played a music game for a few seconds, and then a giant M&M destroyed a city and rapped at you. There's also a part where you turned into Legos. Um, no gameplay on that either. When you were playing in the Lego portion, it was just flying on a set path. Another important piece of information, this event was also horribly set up. Um, I got in the queue more than more than 45 minutes before it started and i still was too late to actually watch the event when it was live (laughs) i got in the queue 
and it said that I would have been on like at the perfect time, but I ended up being like a minute late and it, it didn't let me join. <laughs> this event ended with some downtime while he prepared for the next chapter to start. And with that chapter came not only a new map for Battle Royale, but also a Lego themed crafting survival game, a Rocket League themed racing game, and bad rock band yeah made by harmonics too which kind of makes it weird i wouldn't call it bad definitely not great by any means but it's there too yeah i mean it's not bad it is worse than the worst rock band game. oh that i mean that's for sure because you only have like seven songs at any given time unless you pay for some and and on day one there were only like eight songs that you could buy and they each cost like It's even worse because one of the parts of the music stuff is something called the jam stage, which is like this zone where you and a bunch of players are thrown in and there's multiple stages where you can play an instrument from the songs you own. However, if you don't pay for any, the only songs you own are two Fortnite originals. So that's all you can play. You can't even play like the day's featured songs or the featured songs for the current running, um, I think it's called All Access Pads or something, or the Stage Pass or something. Um, I don't know what it's called, but it's the jam stage sucks. It's, that That's just straight up bad. The um, actual main stage thing, I think that's fun. It's like, you know, rhythm, timing game sort of thing, but with the controller instead of instruments. The rocket racing, I think, is pretty hit or miss because... Sometimes you'll get a cool map where you're jumping around a lot and you can go off on like kind of different paths a lot. Or sometimes you'll get this very static, boring course. And most of the time, it's the static, boring course. It's weird because they said there's like 20 something courses, but we've probably, I mean, I've done fewer races than you guys, I think, or at least fewer than Jordan. I've probably done like 10 races and I've only seen maybe four maps. Which I guess isn't, like, insane, but it is a little disappointing that, I like, I just haven't seen even a quarter of the maps at this point. I don't know. It's not awful. I think it does need some improvement, though. I really like it. Jackson hates it. He will not. He, we were going to play it yesterday, and he just said no and got <laughs> off. I would play it if it would be more of the fun maps, but I feel like every time I have played it, which has only been, like, three or four times... It's almost entirely the very boring maps that just make me wish I was playing Mario Kart. It's kind of interesting because I think this is the second time that Rock or that Fortnite has jumped the shark. Because last time they jumped the shark by just uh, dropping the normal gameplay mode that they were going for, which was a, a survival semi-open world exploration thing, and replaced it with Battle Royale on just one big map where... You know, teams, there's 100 players on the map and you want to be the last one. Uh, This time they've jumped the shark by just being like, you don't have to play that anymore. Yeah, it's really funny because like at the Game Awards, they had a bunch of ads for Fortnite because they'd rather have like five ads for Fortnite than give people time to accept rewards. And almost all of them would have stuff for all four of the game modes, Battle Royale, Lego, Rocket League and Rock Band. And it would be like, play anything 
in one game. Their whole they're actually doing the metaverse, I guess. Um, save the world is never mentioned a single time, <laughs> and it's so funny. It's interesting because they started selling. Well, they started pushing like save the world bundles again. I've gotten recommended it on like the Fortnite main page a couple times, and it, it pops up on PlayStation at yeah. the bottom right when you launch the game. You can get a bundle right now for like nine bucks or something that save the world, some and like a quest pack for V bucks or something. I don't I don't know, <laughs> but then there's also the Lego mode, which is definitely my favorite of them. I think it's just because I usually tend to be into like the crafting survival genre to an extent. Not like a huge fan or anything, but I have a lot of hours in Minecraft. <laughs> and I think it's significantly worse than Minecraft. I'd be interested to play Lego Fortnite. In oh, like yeah. No, I don't. A few months. I, was, I was about to get into that. It's I like it. Uh, It's definitely got like a good bone structure. However, it needs more meat on them bones. <laughs> it it's good for a little. But after a while, you are kind of just doing the same repeated task over and over again and it just it gets stale pretty quickly the combat is not very good um which is really saying something because minecraft's combat is kind of nothing but it's still a lot better than this and biomes are so spread out and it takes forever to get anywhere and i don't know there's just i think there's a lot more they can do with it i'm interested to see what more they'll do uh, with that, though, you do play as LEGO Fortnite skins, so a whole lot of Fortnite original characters and even some of the, like, um, licensed characters have LEGO versions of themselves, which is really cool. Like, they just added the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and they each have a LEGO figure. It's real cool. Um, but, yeah, it's it's been a time in Fortnite. And then, you know, there's Battle Royale, which is still Battle Royale. Peter Griffin's there. Solid Snake will be there. But yeah, it's it's Fortnite. They're uh, succeeding with the metaverse somehow. <laughs> it's interesting to see Fortnite finally actually start doing what they said they were going to do months ago. <laughs> it's ex- Where instead of Fortnite just being Battle Royale, they want to turn it into this platform where you can go and you can play games made by anyone. You can play any kind of game. Which I will say, um, since... The problem is that the only one that isn't incredibly janky and broken is Battle Royale. Yeah. So. I mean, I will say, there are times I have logged in to Fortnite to not play Battle Royale, which I think is what they wanted to happen. <laughs> and I would say I am playing it more now because, like, the Rock Band mode, even though it's not great, each day there are new featured songs to try out. So, stuff like that, like... Keeps you engaged. They very clearly know what they're doing. But anyways, that's way too much talk about Fortnite. And I've done a lot of talking on this episode. This is a very, very strange episode going on here. So I'm going to talk less and let Jason talk. Well, I have not played a huge amount of other things. Um, I finally escaped from the Remedy Connected Universe rabbit hole i guess that i had been stuck down for the past several months past couple months not several whatever um (laughs) so i decided to play through batman arkham origins because i got it on my steam deck not super long ago and i was right to have not played this game until now i've seen a lot of people especially on the subreddit come around and be like actually 
Batman Arkham Origins is not that bad. It's pretty good. It's underrated, and everyone that's talking bad about it has no idea what they're saying. I see people, and they're saying crazy stuff like it's their favorite game in the series, and I'm just like, are we playing the same game? I played through Arkham Asylum and Arkham City. It was either last year or the year before. I think it was last year, and I tried to get the Platinum Trophy on both of them, but... Then I ended up getting close to the end, and especially with Arkham City, the Platinum Trophy requires doing like a bunch of challenge maps, and they're just not my thing. Um, <laughs> Batman Arkham Origins is more or less just the same gameplay as Batman Arkham City on a worse map with a worse story. <laughs> and maybe it'll pick up as I get further into it. I'm only a few hours in at this point still, so... You know, I, I guess I could be I could could come back around on it as I get further back further in. One of the things that's really weird about Arkham Origins is half of that really bad map is the map from City, which is good in City. I don't know what happened. Now, the problem with the map is that it's shaped like a giant bone and there's just this huge bridge that you have to fly across all the time. That does suck. Yeah. The best part of getting around in the Arkham games is getting to fly and like. I feel like Arkham City's map was a little annoying being shaped like a horseshoe, but Arkham Origins is shaped like two horseshoes with a giant bridge between yeah. them. And the bridge is completely flat, completely straight, and it, it takes like a minute and a half to get across. Yeah. But you have to cross that bridge every time you want to go anywhere or you're stuck using fast travel. There is a really good boss fight on that bridge, but like other than that, I hate that bridge. <laughs> It's also kind of a shame, and something I didn't realize, I had played Arkham Origins a little bit when it first came out, uh, and I had played up to the Deathstroke boss fight. I realized while I was playing the Deathstroke boss fight this time that it's just the Ra's al Ghul boss fight from Arkham City. <laughs> like, I remembered that boss fight being really good, and like, yeah, it was, in Arkham City. <laughs> it's just, the, it's literally the same thing again. I don't understand why this game has such vehement fans talking about how great it is. I like the vibes of it. That's kind of it, though. I mean, I like the idea behind it. Like, a, a more violent, younger Batman. Yeah. Just getting started. And Christmas time. But, yeah, there's a... It had a lot of issues, too. Still don't really know if it's actually connected. I mean, I'm pretty sure it is, but at the same time, I don't... It's not included in any Arkham collection, so I'm just assuming it's not. I think it's like semi-connected. I mean, Deathstroke and Batman are definitely familiar with each other. Yeah, but it's got a lot of issues. <laughs> I do think it does have some pretty cool boss fights, but not all of them are very cool. And there's the whole Joker thing. <laughs> I hated that. And I played that game when I was like 10 and I still thought it was dumb. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know. I wasn't expecting to dislike Batman Arkham Origins as much as I do. Um, part of the reason it, it might just be how recently I played Arkham City, I guess. You know, it was only like a year ago, so all of the similarities are just blindingly obvious. Um, Arkham Origins is one of those games that like, I know I'd enjoy playing because I just like the Arkham combat so much, but... Every time I've replayed the Arkham series, I don't touch Origins. Well, it's just like Arkham Asylum sets that baseline, right? 
it, it's not the best in anything except tone and atmosphere. But like gameplay wise, every Batman game that came after that built upon it in like pretty major ways. Like going from Batman Arkham Asylum to Batman Arkham City, just the combat feels better. Traversal feels better. Your gadgets have multiple uses. You can use them in combat. You can use them in the environment. You can use them to get around and solve puzzles. Like there's so much stuff going on between those two games. And then Batman Arkham Knight just takes everything and turns it up to 11, which some people like, some people don't like. I personally am a really big fan of Batman Arkham Knight, but I can kind of see where people fell off of that game. I don't think the Batmobile stuff is anywhere near as bad as people say after having played it semi-recently. Like, there's still too much of it, and it is a problem, but people act like you're in the Batmobile for 90% of the game, and it's like 20% of the game. (laughs) Which is still way too much. Batman does not use the Batmobile that much no. in anything else. I think it does take away from some of the boss fights. Like, the one where you fight the Arkham Knight in the big drill thing. Like, I don't think that was necessary. And more importantly, the Deathstroke fight just is one of the times you fight Arkham Knight in the tank. That's also dumb. Batman... Arkham Knight is maybe one of the most mechanically complex games that I've I've ever played. There's a lot going on. To the on. point where like you constantly find out about weird things that you can do in the game that you never would have thought of. <laughs> and Arkham Origins doesn't have anything going for it that wasn't already in Arkham City. Yeah. So it, it's just a big disappointment in comparison. Arkham Knight's combat is just like the peak of the rocks. I almost said Rockstar. Rocksteady Arkham Combat. Like, the biggest reason I don't want another Arkham game is just because I don't think it can get better in the combat sense. And that's a big driving force of the game. Like, I think they could still try to do a better story, but I don't think they can take the combat much other places. Like, obviously, I'll play more of it for sure. I'm going to try to finish Arkham Origins and maybe go through the DLC. Because, I mean, like I said, it is just a lot of, it's the same as Arkham City. It doesn't add anything new. But Arkham City is also still a really good game. So, like, I'll play through a worse Arkham City just to get to the (laughs) end and see if there's something new there that I like. But I'm not exactly looking forward to it. But anyways, that's enough about me. Jordan, what have you been up to this week? I have been playing God of War Ragnarok Valhalla. Uh, This is a new DLC that just came out a couple of days ago. It was revealed at the Game Awards and then dropped just like five days later, which is pretty wild. Uh, It is a roguelike sort of combat arena centric thing. Um, And upon hearing that, I was excited because like I love the God of War combat. I love roguelikes like it's definitely up my up my alley. But this is actually a much more substantial DLC than I was expecting, like probably one of the biggest free DLCs I've played. Um, There is a lot on display here. So this is a narrative follow up to the base game. It takes place uh, an unspecified amount of time, but not too, too long after God of War Ragnarok. Uh, Kratos has received an invitation to Valhalla from someone he doesn't know, or it's, it's not signed. He doesn't know who it's from. Um, and when he gets there, he loses all of his powers. I mean, he's still like, he's still super strong and still has his weapons, but 
his health is cut away. He loses all of his armor and his relics and all of his special abilities he picked up over the course of these last two games. Um, so he's left to just him and his weapons. And uh, upon entering, uh, he learns that when he dies, he is kicked back to the shores of Valhalla, where he, where he first arrived. Um, and he has to progressively work his way through and get further and further into Valhalla because he knows that there is something and someone waiting for him at the end, but he doesn't know what. And, you know, that's that's already a pretty interesting hook in my mind, but what's also really, really cool about this is as you are progressing, um, you know, most of it's like you do a fight, you go to like a little hub, you go to a fight, you go to the hub, and every time you're in the hub, there are these conversations going on between Kratos and Mimir that are sort of setting up what has happened since God of War Ragnarok and what's ahead for the two of them. Um, <laughs> what's ahead for Mimir? <laughs> I um, get it, because he uh, is just a decapitated yeah. head. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess um, decapitated is the wrong word. He is the cap. Yeah. <laughs> That's cap. <laughs> yeah. But basically, it's just a... It's a you know, it's an arena to set up some of the really cool combat from God of War Ragnarok. It has some interesting hooks that sort of expand upon that and add some new stuff to it, which is kind of cool. Um, I think like the really big selling point here, though, is the fact that Valhalla is sort of a... It's a reflection of your own memories in this particular telling. So what Kratos is experiencing on his way to Valhalla are his own memories sort of played back to him. And that culminates as going back to the most iconic moments from his time in Olympus. And you fight enemies from Olympus, you pull, you know, you meet some characters from the the original three games, which is really cool. Um, you know, you get some new powers that are based on stuff that Kratos did in the original games. And seeing all of that stuff, mainly the locations, seeing like those locations pushed into God of War and God of War Ragnarok is just so cool. Because, you know, I didn't love God of War 1 or 2, but I did love God of War 3. And I think that God of War 3 is is an exceptional game even today. There are parts of it that haven't aged super well, but overall it is still a fantastic game. And I have so many huge and iconic memories that I associate with that game way over most others from that era of gaming. So seeing that in God of War Ragnarok and getting to fight enemies from those games and sort of getting to dig into, you know, Kratos has a lot of trauma from that time. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's been addressed extensively in both of the last two games, but actually getting to see Kratos, you know, interact with a character he previously killed and have to come to terms with that is is really interesting. I, it's had like a much bigger narrative hook than I was expecting. Um, I also really, really like the game's progression systems. Um, I think that both God of War and Ragnarok got a little bogged down with how you upgraded your characters. Ragnarok fixed some of it, but not entirely. But it was always a very tedious process in my mind because the stats were linked to armor, which had passive abilities that you couldn't change, and they affected the different weapons. And it, it always kind of felt like you were either not living up to your potential or you were focusing like all in on one weapon and one ability when that just didn't feel right for the larger plethora of abilities that Kratos has. This game has a much more straightforward progression system. As you 
beat enemies, you get currency, you carry over some of that currency back to the hub world when you're not in a run, you can use that to buy a permanent upgrade. It could be, I mean, most of the time it's small. It's like a, you know, your abilities cool down 2% faster or, you know, you, you, your crit rate increases by 3% or whatever. Like it's very small upgrades, but they are upgrades you carry with you and you can keep leveling them up and keep leveling them up so that, you know, you have a lot more control over what Kratos is good at. It's not just linked to what armor or weapon or whatever he's carrying around, which I, I really appreciate because like, for example, I never really focused on like the cooldown of my abilities or runic, uh, like their status effects, because that was stuff that you had to like really go all in on to get a lot out of. In this, you can buy those passive upgrades, get a little bit better at all those things, but still be focusing on like the cool stuff you want to do. Um, it's much more even this time around, I guess is a good way to put it. So, I mean, I'm not going to say this is a game that's going to convince people that didn't like Ragnarok to get into it, but I do think there is sort of a different market on this than there was on the base game. Um, and if you liked the base game's combat at all, this is a lot of it in a lot of really cool ways. It's so, interesting. If you liked... Uh, oh, sorry, sorry, you go ahead. I, I was just going to say, it's interesting how Santa Monica keeps coming back to roguelikes. Because there was a roguelike mode in God of War 1, or, you know, God of War 2018 as well. And I, there's like a semi-roguelike thing going on in uh, whichever one, Helheim maybe, Niflheim, one of the bad ones. <laughs> Just kind of an interesting note that they kind of keep coming back to the uh, the roguelike well, even though the base games are more or less just based around your standard linear narrative action games. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it works though, because I think that they abandon a lot of the most, um, universally frustrating <laughs> parts of roguelikes. Like there is a lot more progress carried over between runs in this than you would traditionally see in a game that is just a roguelike. And I think that it already had this triple a explosive over the top combat, Whereas a lot of roguelikes are made by smaller studios, so they have to rely on, you know, isometric graphics or pixelated, you know, features like like their their lower fidelity. This is already a beautiful, gorgeous, incredibly detailed game, and it is put into a roguelike world. And for me, that's like perfect. Like that's what I want a lot of games to be. I know that this mode would not work in the slightest as like the core hook of the game. But as a completely optional expansion with like its own progression systems that's not tied to the base game at all, like this is awesome. And the fact that this game is free is insane to me because, I mean, I've already put, I don't know, 10 hours into it and I still have way more stuff to do. It's so, pretty crazy to spend a, a year working on a DLC and then surprise drop it for free. Yeah, I know. Like that's that's absurd. So, I mean, because they've got to be working on other stuff too. So my only gripe with it, which this is pretty minor, is, you know, as you every time you win a fight, you get to pick some rewards um, in like the very first encounter. You have to pick if you want a buff to one of your three weapons. You'll be given two choices of and each choice will be one of the three weapons. Whatever one you pick will then inform all the choices you get after that one. So it kind of feels like every run goes all in on one weapon. 
Like, you still have to switch weapons sometimes because there are enemies that are only weak to one of the three. But most of the time, it's like in the first fight, you get an upgrade for the spear or for the blades. And, like, from that point forward, you're just using that weapon, except for when you're fighting one specific enemy that needs the other one. Other than that, I think it's incredibly well balanced. It has some really interesting, it has some really interesting hooks. I think that each individual run feels really good. Um, I do recommend playing it on the recommended difficulty. <laughs> um, I got a little ahead of myself. It's like there's like one difficulty is like the recommended, and there's like three difficulties above it. And I beat the the base game on the hardest difficulty. So like I went back, I went in right away, and I was like, I'm gonna do that again. This game doesn't warm you up <laughs> like the base game does. Like the base game, it introduces all the mechanics over time. The enemies get progressively stronger as you go. This game, if you go in, basically going in like fresh without any of the gear and you don't have like, you haven't played the game in a year like I have, uh, you'll just, you'll hit a brick wall the second you start. I mean, my first run of playing it on the hardest difficulty, I died to the third enemy I fought and it was just like, like generic Draugr. <laughs> so like it, this game is hard, hard when you're playing on the hardest difficulty, like way more than the actual like base game is. So check it out. It's free to play. If you already have God of War Ragnarok. So, and if you, if you have a PS five, you should have God of War Ragnarok. <laughs> so yeah, if you have a PS five required ownership of Spider-Man, God of War and, uh, Ratchet, yeah, Ratchet and Clank. I mean, God of War Ragnarok was our game of the year last year. I mean, shows you everything you need to know. <laughs> but that's that's too many video games and too short of a time. I think it's time to bring this one to a close. If you would like to reach out to us, there are a handful of ways you can do that. First, on Twitter at TVMcast. Second, on Instagram at Totally Biased Media. And third, you can send an email to totallybiasedmedia at gmail.com. Uh, this is our last episode of the year. We're coming back middle of January with our game of the year episode. We're going to talk about everything we've played in 2023. Um, yeah, but we would love to hear your, your picks for game of the year. Um, you know, we've, we've been really excited to see all these other publications and all this stuff, put this stuff out. So we would love to hear some of our fans takes as well. Um, oh, you can also find us on twitch.tv slash totally biased media. Um, the year of the Kong's over. We're we're done. Yeah, you don't. You're you're not prepared for what's coming in 2024. What's coming <laughs> in 2024? Because I don't even know. Because we're we're not prepared either. That, oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, but check it out. Twitch.tv slash Totally Biased Media. We have a lot of lot of fun stuff coming in the future. But for the Totally Biased Media podcast, I'm Jordan Walkup. I'm Jason Simmons. And I'm Jackson Walkup. You just felt the bias. Thank you, everyone. Goodbye. Goodbye.